If you were to go out and take a poll of Christians and just ask simple questions about Bible stuff, you would be amazed at what a lot of believers don't know and don't understand. Now, it's not primarily their fault. It's the pulpit's fault. There's an old saying, if there is a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. That means if the word's not being taught or preached from the pulpit, then how do you expect the people to know? And there's a trend in our, our culture, in our country, in, in the West, to, to really not teach and preach the word anymore. A lot of people don't. Some of the biggest churches in America don't really preach the word. They don't teach the Bible. It's sort of a success seminar is what you hear. But my Bible says faith comes by hearing the word of God. And not only that, as they put up our verse today, not only that, but there is an attack on most of the things that we hold. I would say all of the things we hold near and dear. If you're a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian, a lot of what we believe is now under attack in this country in a way I've never seen. And I've been preaching 40 years. I started when I was two. I started young. I was still a teenager when I started preaching. But... In 40 years of preaching, I've never seen the climate of persecution and mockery uh, of our faith like there is in America right now. So I think we need to understand some things to be able to combat it. So I'm going to talk to you today about the authority of Scripture. Is this book, does it just contain some words of God? Or is it, cover to cover, the word of God. Okay. That, that's the question. Now, a lot of people are shouting the word. That's great. But some of you aren't sure of that. I know that. So I want to tell the truth about some of the lies you're believing. Okay. So we're going to read one simple verse from Jesus. He's in prayer for his disciples before he goes to the cross. This is John 17. So he's about ready to go to the cross. He's praying for his disciples. Look what he prays to the father. He says, father, use the truth to make them holy. And then what does he say? The last four words, read it out loud. Your word is total truth. Your word is truth. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now that your word is truth. And I pray that those that have questions, doubts, who are being tossed around in their souls about this issue, that you will settle the authority of Scripture in their minds today. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Clear out the fog in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor. Just turn to right or left, not your spouse, someone else, and just say, his word is truth. And you can be seated. Now, when Jesus prayed, boy, great theology came out when Jesus prayed. I want you to notice what Jesus says about the word in just this brief verse we read. First, he said, it's the word that makes us holy. So there is a sanctifying effect with the Word of God. It is the Word of God that makes us holy, that that helps sanctify us, set us apart to God, live a holy life, walk the way we should. So 
the truth of God, God's word makes us holy. Then he said, God's word is truth. Now, right there, Jesus is expressing his conviction that the Bible, and of course, at that time, there was only the Old Testament. So what so many people doubt the Old Testament, Jesus said that Old Testament is truth. In that it is God's word. Doesn't just contain some of God's word, but it is God's word. Now, here's the fact about God's word. God's word does not change with changing cultures. God never says, well, I better change my word to suit the whims and the desires of various people in the culture, changing cultures. Have you noticed that there's all kinds of people in our culture now trying to change the word to fit what they want it to say? They're not interpreting it. They're saying, here's what I want it to say. So they're reading into it what they wish the word did say. So that is not what God's called us to do. He has called us to read his word, take it as it's written, and live by it. And his word is true, unchanging, unbending in all times, in all places, in all societies, in all cultures, among all people, no matter what they wish it said. I love the word of God because I love the God of the word. And the two are almost virtually inseparable. This is God's word. It's his love letter to us. 66 books of a love letter from heaven to us. He's given us this book. Every word in it we're going to see. And that's what I want us to get today. If you want to know where Turning Point Church stands with the word of God, let me tell you what we believe. And Jesus believed what we believe. And I'm going to show you that. But we believe the Bible is inerrant. Now, when I say inerrant, here's what I mean. Exempt from error. Inerrant. No error. It's inerrant. We believe it's exempt from error in the original manuscripts as God gave it. It is exempt from error. It is, it is a pure, accurate, 100% inerrant word, exempt from error. Here's where we stand, that the Bible is actually and literally the word of God. See, here's the problem. If you take even one verse and you say, well, I'm not sure that's the word of God. So we're going to say that that's maybe or maybe not the word of God. You have just opened a really bad door because if you do that, then how do you know the rest of it is not open to discussion and debate as well? And then the enemy is able to attack you and you have been stripped of your greatest weapon against him, the the word of God. Jesus always quoted the word to the devil. It is written. It is written. It is written. That's how he defeated him. But how can you say it's written if you're really thinking it might have been written? It could be true, maybe true, but I'm not sure it's true. Then the enemy can wreak havoc on you and havoc on our culture. Look at our culture today and where it has gone since we rejected the word of God. Look where it's gone. We're in a, an increasingly stunning and amazing and tragic cultural nightmare, a cultural slide. We're becoming Sodom overnight as it was in the days of Noah. So is it in the days of America right now? See, you put the word of God out, the enemy rushes in. So we've got to know that this is the word of God. 
How did this word come about? This word came about as God Almighty prompted the original thoughts found in Scripture in the minds of the writers. The Bible says that holy men of God spoke as they were born along by the Holy Ghost. It's like, it's not automatic writing where they fell into a trance and just, you know, something was moving their hand. It's more a picture of a sailboat. You hoist the sail and a breeze blows it and it is blown along, borne along, carried along by that breeze. That's how the writers were born along, carried along by the Holy Ghost and they wrote what the Holy Ghost put in their minds to write. 2 Peter 1.21, not one part of the holy writings came because of what man wanted to write. Not one verse in here is the idea of a man. This is the only book in the world that didn't come from this world. Okay, think about that. Yes, earthly men wrote it, but they were moved along, born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what it said. Holy men who belonged to God spoke what the Holy Spirit told them to. That's how the Bible came about. 66 different books about 35 to 40 different authors over a span of about 1,500 years, none of them collaborating, none of them getting together and saying, okay, we're going to write a holy book. What do we say? They came from all different backgrounds, all different time periods, over a millennium and a half, and yet this book totally and completely agrees with itself. There is no contradiction, no error. It's as if a group of 35 to 40 did get together at the same time and decide what to write, but they didn't. Jesus placed incredible importance on obeying the word. He considered the word, of course, that he spoke, the word of God. But at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus said about the word of God and the importance of doing what it says. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, here comes the adversities of life. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew. Adversity. And beat on that house. Bang, bang, bang. But Jesus said it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded upon the rock. Now, he didn't say if adversity comes. He said when. He said when the winds blow, when the rains fall, when the floods come. And beat on your house. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people walk away from the faith, walk away from church, get offended, and walk away from God because they encountered adversity. And that tells me that before the adversity came, they had not built their house, their life on the Word of God. The rock that Jesus mentions, building your house on a rock, is not just himself, but it's the word that he taught as well as the whole Bible by implication because the whole Bible, says Paul, was given to us by inspiration from God. All Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is given to us by inspiration from God. And Jesus said when you're building your house, when you're getting your life together, your finances, your relationships, your sexuality, everything... You build it on the teaching of the word, and when adversity comes, you're left standing when the storm blows over. But look what he said happens if you don't build it on the word. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew. Somebody walked out, 
The kids went crazy. You get a bad doctor report. The winds blow. The floods come. You lose your job. And if you're not built on the rock, it falls. The house falls. And Jesus added a kicker. Great was its fall. Because when a righteous person falls, the repercussions go way further out than if a lost person falls. That's the idea. I really do believe one of the big reasons that people don't take Scripture seriously is they don't truly, deep down, believe that it's God's Word. If they really believed it was God's Word, they would obey it. We believe that it has some good ideas in it, some words of God in it. If you're in a university or a college, almost anywhere in the country, this is going to be poo-pooed and ridiculed and mocked. And if you say you believe it, you're considered intellectually stupid. When my Bible says even the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So if you're even starting out in wisdom, you have a fear of the Lord. So if you have no fear of the Lord, you don't even have a smidgen of wisdom. Now, if if this Bible is not God's Word, then we've really got an issue here because that means that those who have believed it throughout the ages were sadly mistaken. It means that those who gave their lives to spread the gospel were deceived. And they gave their lives for nothing. What about those who gave their lives to translate this Bible so that we could have it in our language and they were ridiculed, mocked, stalked, martyred, their lives on earth were made miserable, Because they had set out to translate this Bible, this Bible, the pages in this Bible are speckled with the blood of martyrs who gave their lives to give us this word. John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, and others, they gave their lives to give us this word. So it shouldn't be gathering dust on a coffee table. It ought to be worn out. And he whose Bible is worn out probably isn't. You got to think about that. But it is God's Word. This Bible is God's Word. It doesn't have just some of God's words in it. It is God's Word. I'm going to give you four good reasons for for believing this. Because this is something every Christian should know. We ought to know this is the very Word of God. We hold in our hands. Here's four good reasons. The Bible teaches inerrancy about itself. The Bible says concerning itself, if it were a person that could stand up and talk to you like I am right now, the Bible would say to you, I am inerrant. Second, Jesus affirmed inerrancy over and over again. He believed that the Bible was the very word of God, and he also predicted the writing of the New Testament. Third, the church historically has believed in inerrancy. The church through the centuries has believed that This is the Word of God. And the fourth, God's character demands that it be inerrant because God's character is perfect. He's not a man that he can lie. God will never lead you astray. God will never deceive you. God will never tell you one thing and do another. So since his character is righteous and perfect and good at all times, then his character demands that this book be truthful. Now, let me just say, the first, the Bible teaches inerrancy about itself. Listen to this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, all of it is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable. We profit from it in four ways. For doctrine, 
what we are to believe about God and life. For reproof, it corrects us, correction. And for instruction in righteousness, it shows us what kind of lives we're to live. live. So the, the, all Scripture, the Bible says of itself, is without error. It is inspired by God. The word inspiration literally means breathed out by God. You know, I can't say a word right now without breathing out. It is in when you breathe out, you say words. What this is telling us is that God literally spoke out, breathed out, spoke the word out. And moved on a holy man of old. And they wrote as the ideas and the thoughts were put upon them by the Holy Spirit. It was God exhaling, speaking out the words. So God breathed out the scripture. So the Bible says of itself that all of it, all of it, Genesis to Revelation is inspired. Now, second, Jesus believed that the Bible was inerrant. And he affirmed that it was inerrant. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he said. For truly I tell you, said Jesus, until the sky and earth pass away and perish, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until every bit of it is fulfilled. Now, you know what an English little I looks like. You know, the small case I, little dot above it. You want to know what a jot and a tittle is? It's like that little dot above the I. It's like a little insignificant pen stroke, a, a, a little dot above the eye. The, 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 a jot and tittle were small marks in the Hebrew alphabet that distinguish one letter from another. So here's what Jesus is saying. All of the Bible will be fulfilled right down to the minutest pen stroke. Now, I call that believing in inerrancy. So, so you have the book of Revelation, okay? The very end of this book, you got the book of Revelation, most of which has not happened. Jesus said not one of the minutest pen strokes that John put down about what is coming on planet Earth, not one of them will pass without being totally, completely, perfectly fulfilled. That's how strongly Jesus believed in inerrancy. Uh, <clears throat> he believed in inerrancy in other, other areas of the Bible as well as some really touchy areas in our day. For instance, people who claim atheism or agnosticism, people who believe that parts of the Bible are in error, almost always bring up somewhere in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you have four epical events. Four giant defining moments in history. You have the creation of the world with a capital C, creation. Then you have the fall of man into sin. Then you have the great flood where God judged sinful man on the earth, and there really was an ark. And then you have the Tower of Babel where man was essentially trying to build a city that totally put God out. Tower of Babel was an experiment in pushing God out of culture. So creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. When you have somebody that says, I don't believe the Bible is inerrant, and I've got one of these in my family, and I love them very much. I'm not mocking them or ridiculing them. I'm concerned for them. But in my family, there is a person who has always felt this way. They say to me, Jeff, I, I just don't believe the creation account. I don't believe that, that God spoke and there was creation. I believe in evolution. Okay. All right. Evolution. 
Now, what does the evolutionist believe? The evolutionist believes that billions and billions and billions and billions of years ago, we don't know how long, there was this ancient sea, and out of the sea crawled a little single-celled amoeba that crawled out and given trillions and jillions of years and chance, it finally evolved into all the different species we see, all the things we see here, taste, touch, and smell, all came from that little amoeba crawling out of some ancient primordial sea. And we know that, for instance, one species never, never, never produces another species. God put that principle into motion when he created everything. He said everything will produce after its own kind. So cats don't produce dogs, cows don't produce goats, and birds don't produce snakes. I mean, you cannot take one species and it produce another, but the evolutionist is not moving on facts. They're moving on a belief. Evolution is a faith. It is a belief system. They put faith in evolution just like we put faith in God. So they say, if you give, if you give something enough time and enough chance Evolution will finally happen and it will create things out of nothing. But here's the deal. You never have something coming out of nothing. Something can't come out of nothing. It says in the Bible that God created ex nihilo. That means God created something out of nothing. But the something didn't really come out of nothing. It came out of the word of God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be the mammals, there were the mammals. It says, God said, let us make man, and God fa- fashioned and formed man out of the dust of the ground. We are not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let us make man. Say, well, Pastor Jeff, I just believe that if you leave things alone long enough, then something will come out of nothing. Let me just show you a cartoon up here that I got last night. Two snowmen talking. Don't be absurd. Nobody made us. We evolved by chance from snowflakes. Now, let me ask you a question as you look at this. If you let a snowstorm rage for 100 years, would it create what you see? If I said to you, if we were walking through the woods and we saw two snowmen like this, I'd say, oh, look what evolution hath wrought. You would say, oh, no, 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 no. Somebody had to make that. There is in Psalms 14, 1, here's what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now watch carefully, church. Those two words, there is, no God, there is, are in italics in your Bible because it was supplied by the translators. It wasn't in the original. Here's what it really says. The fool has said in his heart, no God. The word for God is Elohim. That's the word the psalmist used. What is Elohim? Creator. So here's what it's really saying. The fool has said in his heart, no creator. There's no creator. And if you say there's no creator, this all came from nothing, the Bible says that's foolish. Did you know that Jesus cited the creation account in his teaching? What are you going to do with that? 
If you say you're a Christian, but you believe in evolution, hang on. Watch this. Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus said, God made, fashioned, created male and female, man, woman. He made them. So if Jesus said he made them, that says Jesus believed the creation account. And and if you are going to tell me Jesus would be an evolutionist if he was alive today, I'm telling you, you don't know your Bible. He would not even come close to being an evolutionist. He would say, wait a minute, God made them. Jesus affirmed the reality of the great worldwide flood. You see, now I, I can hear some of you thinking, well, now, but Jeff, you're going where angels fear to tread because I've always been taught evolution was true. I know you have. But there's a reason it's called the theory of evolution. Is it not? Well, that's not the way I was taught it, I know. But it's called the theory of evolution because it's not settled science. It's an unproven theory. I wouldn't even give it theory. I'd give it distant hypothesis. But it really, I wouldn't even give it that. Jesus said, as, it, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there was a great flood that covered the entire earth, and there was an ark that took in two of every species and it did float on the waters for as long as God needed to totally redo the earth. And Noah and Mrs. Noah and their children replenished the whole earth. Jesus said, as the days of Noah were. He also cited the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself, told his hearers that those things which were written by the prophets were literally being fulfilled in him. Then he said to them, the two men on the road to Emmaus, then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which is written concerning me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he said, look at me. And you're seeing Old Testament prophecies fulfilled to a T. I was born of a virgin. I've lived a sinless life. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. And then he said, and I'm going to return again one day. The first four predictions have all come to pass. He was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, as Micah said. He died on the cross, as Psalms 22 said. He rose from the dead, as the Bible says many, many times throughout. And the only one yet to be fulfilled is I'm going to come back. But if the first four were, you know the last one is. So, He was telling the people of his day that the stunning fulfillment of prophecies surrounding Jesus' own life should have shown the people surrounding him that the Bible is without error. So let me ask you a question, church. How can we take a lesser view of the scriptures than Jesus did and still claim to be his followers? Now, third, the church has embraced inerrancy throughout the centuries. Just so you'll know, since the days of the apostles, the church has primarily believed the accuracy of the Bible. This doesn't prove inerrancy near like the fact that Jesus affirmed it. 
But let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it be foolish to deny what has been embraced by Christians since the birth of the church? They all believed it. They accepted the Scripture as God's Word. Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation and out of whom came the Lutheran church, he wrote, The Scriptures, although they were written by men, are not of men, but they are from God. Men like William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, who I already mentioned, and others gave their lives to translate the Bible they so believed in so that we could understand it. Now, the last thing, God's character demands the Bible be true. The character of God himself requires that the Bible be without fault because he is without fault. Paul wrote to Titus about the, quote, God who cannot lie. Titus 1, verse 2. Moses wrote this about the character of God. Listen, God is not like people, he wrote. He tells no lies. He's not like humans. He doesn't change his mind. When he says something, he does it. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. That's God. God doesn't look you in the eye and lie to you. God doesn't tell you one thing and do another. God doesn't lead you astray, misguide you. He, He does not do... God is totally and completely truthful with you and me. So his character requires a Bible that is inerrant, that is truthful, that is right. So let me just sum this up real quick. The Bible teaches inerrancy about itself. Jesus trusted its inerrancy. The church historically accepted its inerrancy. And the character of God requires inerrancy. Can you grab your Bible just for a minute? If you've got your Bible with you, let's just hold it up. Those of you that have a Bible. I used to say, if you come to church without a Bible, you came undressed. Okay? So look now. Hold it up. And I want you to realize that Jesus said, this is the very word of God. With this Bible, he defeated the devil. With this word, he said, it's, in, it, it's inerrant. It's perfect. So can we just say, Lord, thank you for your word today. Amen. What a fabulous book we hold in our hands. Now, on top of all these things, the Bible is also a spiritually alive book unlike any other. There's not another book in the world like the Bible. Not another one. It's still the all-time bestseller. It's never been outsold by any other book. There's a reason for that. It is the Word of God. And the Bible says of itself that the words in it are spiritually activated. They are alive. They pulsate with life. Like no other word book that you can read, the Bible is full of life. Listen to what it says about itself. The Word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than the very sharpest two-edged sword. It pierces between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it reveals our innermost thoughts and desires. Listen to the adjectives that describe the Word of God. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharp. It pierces. It reveals. When I get up here and I stand behind this pulpit and I preach or teach this Word, I am very aware that when I quote the Word, it does something my words cannot do. It is quick. It is alive. It divides soul and spirit. It reveals to the listeners the thoughts and intents and motives of their own heart that they maybe themselves are not even aware of until they hear the word of God. It is light like a laser. It is spiritual laser light. The word of God. It's a 
It's a living book because the author is God. It has the power to change your life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, some of you, well, you know, Jeff, I'm really not much of a reader. And, you know, I try to read that Bible and I get bored. My mind wanders and I can't see that it's doing me a lot of good. I just like coming and hearing you on Sundays because otherwise I don't get much out of it. Let me tell you, that's not true. It does do you good. Every time you read it, even though you may not be aware of it, the Bible does you good. Let me, let me tell you some things it does for you real quickly. One, the Bible will keep you from sin. Now, that's enough to read the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin. When you read the Bible, let's just say one verse. That verse goes down into your heart like a soldier standing guard over your heart. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've memorized your word because when I memorize it, it goes down like a soldier. And when temptation comes, that soldier pulls out its sword and says, no, stop far enough. This is God's child. They will not go into that temptation and sin. It is a guard. It's a guard. Second, the Bible is your personal guidebook for how to live. It tells you what to shun, what to embrace, what to say, what not to say, what to think, what not to think, how to live in God. It's it's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He who builds his house on the rock means he who builds his lifestyle around the teachings of Scripture will know exactly how to live life. God uses Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.17. God uses Scripture to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The entrance of, uh, of your word gives light, said David. It gives understanding to the simple. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In, in a dark and sinister world, your word is like a lantern that lights up my path as I lo- walk along the way so that I see serpents, so that I see pitfalls, so that I can avoid danger. That word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. It shows me how to live. So I build my house on it and I live successfully and victoriously over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now watch this. Not only that, but the word has power to ongoingly change your life. This is a transforming, transformative book. It's the word of God. It changes your life. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And I want you to, it's so powerful. He says, therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word is, continues to work in you who believe. Oh, that is so powerful. See, the word is working mightily in you. When you read it, here's what the word does. It goes down inside of you and it erases old ways of thinking, old concepts, old attitudes. It erases them and it replaces them with God's way of thinking, the way God sees things with God thoughts. So that It is working mightily in us. The word, as we read it, continues to work mightily inside of us by renewing our minds. That's how it transforms us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, 
by the mercies of God. Romans 12, 1, watch this. Did you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service in light of what he's done for you. And don't be conformed to this world. That means don't let this world shape you into its own image, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, how is the mind renewed? Here's the renewer right here. This is the renewer right here. So every time you get into the word of God and read it, it goes into you. It is quick and it's powerful and it's sharp and it goes into you and it erases those old negative ways of thinking and it replaces them with God's thoughts, God's victory, God's view of the world, God's love for people, God thoughts. It changes you every time you get into it. And I love this part about the word. The word brings us comfort and hope in times of trouble. You want to know how to keep hope alive? Stay in the word. That's how you keep hope alive. You stay in the word. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope so that no matter what you're going through, no matter what people have done to you, no matter where your finances are, no matter what you're experiencing, if you stay in the word, it will keep you walking in hope instead of despair. Because here's what the Bible tells you. God's in charge. God's going to get you to the other side. You're not going to stay in this valley. You're not going to stay in this oven. It is not hopeless. He is the God of hope. And God is going to carry you through to the other side of victory. It is never over till God has had his say. You're not going down, but you're going through. And that's what the word tells you. In light of all these powerful truths about the Bible, how should we respond to it? Let me give you two quick ways. These are easy. The first way we need to respond in light of this is obedience. Once we have knowledge of the word, we must be obedient to that word if we're going to call him Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? So obedience to the word of God, especially when you know, hey, this is not just a book. This is the word from the living creator God. So the only thing I can do is obey it. And the second thing is, submit to it. We should subject our personal emotions and will to scriptural authority. See, your emotions will take you places that sometimes you shouldn't go. Your emotions will attach to things that aren't God's will for you. Your emotions will keep you on a roller coaster in life like this. Your emotions will will cause you to live a life of storm and turmoil. We are not called to be emotion-driven. We're called to be word-driven. So here's what the Bible says. We break down every thought and proud thing that puts itself up against the wisdom of God. We take hold of every thought and make it obey Christ. There you go. So that if my emotions are telling me I need to go this way or that way, but I can see that it's not in accordance with the Word of God, I don't go. I submit to the word. Now I want you to listen. This is, I say the best for last. I got this in the Amplified Bible because I want you to hear the promise that there is in getting into the word of God every day. Listen to this. And all of us as with unveiled face, because we continue to behold in the word of God as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, 
Catch that. You see it right there. It's saying when we open these pages and begin to read them, what reflects out onto us as if we're looking in a mirror? The glory of the Lord. He goes on. And we are constantly being transformed into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor and from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When I get into this word, I open this word, I begin to soak it in, the glory of the Lord comes out. And that glory and the word that is in this word begins to renew my mind and I am transformed from glory to glory and faith to faith, even by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is what transforms me, but the tool he uses is the word of God. I want you to stand with me and we're going to read in closing what Joshua told the people about the word of God. I want you to read this out loud. Like you're just kind of like you're preaching. I want us to get this. How many of you are glad the word is a transforming word? Now, all right. Now, having answered that, how many of you can say I'm in that word? How often? Oh, I love to hear the word daily. Let's read this together now, can we? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Amen. Isn't that good? Let's bow for a moment of prayer, can we? And I would just ask you to slip your hands up towards heaven. And I want you to say with me, Lord, thank you for your word. Like no other word, I receive this message. Change me, transform me, renew me as I spend time in that word. In the mighty name of Jesus. Now, we're going to sing a stanza or two. And as we're singing this worship song, I want you to take a minute with God and just say, Lord, increase my time in your word. Not just quantity, but quality.